Buenos dias. Good morning. Happy Sunday. It is so good to gather with you today. Uh, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Carlos, and it is just wonderful to see you. Uh, I love being a part of Evergreen. I love being part of this team. I want to begin by sharing a, a significant moment. Ilsen and I decided on April 14th, 2018, to um, gather um, almost 300 of our closest family and friends uh, to witness us exchanging personal vows, to witness us slow dance to uh, Johnny Swim's Take the World, and barely get a slice of cake. Very expensive cake, might, might I add. And would you, would you like for me to describe how I felt that day? Yeah. I can't. It's indescribable. <laughs> but the next day, after this big day, our wedding day, we got on a plane and we spent several days on this beautiful island called Kauai. And the whole experience was just as wonderful as that tropical paradise. But then once we got back from that trip, Ilsen and I did something. We did something that marriage, married people do. And that's that we took all of our personal individual belongings we gathered uh, our past experiences, our individual personalities that are full of preferences and pet peeves, and then we sprinkled in there a lifetime of habits and our family's uh, origin stories that have caused great blessings but also great wounds. And then to top it off, um, our, we brought our tendency to be self-serving, and then we asked that all of that coexist in a one-bedroom apartment <laughs> with one bathroom, one closet, and get this, family, one parking spot. One. I want everyone to show me the one. One. After the author of Genesis uh, describes the creation of the first woman, uh, they write this. They write, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become what? One flesh. One. And this is the language that the Bible uses to describe the intimacy that is experienced in marriage, I have found that the marriage relationship has the greatest potential uh, for uh, intimacy to be experienced like never before, to be deeply known emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually. And this is why I think the New Testament author Paul wrote the following. He wrote, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who, loves his, he who loves his wife loves himself. And so according to Paul, 
loving your significant other is equivalent to loving yourself. Why? Because when I married Ilsian, we became one. And so marriage is that. It's becoming one. And becoming one, it requires uh, intentionality. It requires some humility. It requires some compromise. And it requires some help. And all the married people in the room say amen. (laughs) And then who better than to help with marriage than the creator of marriage? I've heard it said that marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. And so anyone here who has been married past the honeymoon stage knows that marriage is not for the faint of heart, that it can be hard, um, that it can take work, and so we should be asking ourselves why. Why does it come natural? Why isn't it much easier? Well, uh, the author of the book that is inspiring um, some of this series called Us in Mind um, says this, marriage is complicated because marriage is close. Marriage is complicated because marriage is close. The proximity that one experiences with another human being, the very thing that makes marriage great also makes it hard. Does that make sense? And so in marriage, we have a front row seat to our partner's bloopers and their failures and their flaws. Uh, I mean, we are experiencing life without filters we're getting, we're getting the unedited scripts of everyday life when we think of life with our partner. And so Ted Lowe says, even your things have to get along. When you get married, your stuff now belongs to us. And so close proximity with unique personalities and historical baggage and more, these are the things that feed the narrative we are then telling ourselves about our spouse. And that's what I want to talk to you today because we're in a series called Us in Mind where we are thinking about how we think about the person that we are married to. And if you're here, if you're here today and you are not married, that is not your Facebook status. Um, if you are single, well, um, I believe that there is still something for you here today because there are relationship principles that you can learn from and maybe apply in a future relationship, but also next week we'll be hitting on singleness. I do believe that everyone can benefit from this conversation is what I'm trying to say. But here's the premise. How we think of our spouse will determine how we treat our spouse. Now, the reality is, is uh, no one married Jesus, right? Right? Um, I know a lot of us like to say that in college, right? I'm married, I'm married to Jesus right now, right? <laughs> but nobody married another perfect human beings. And because of that, uh, we will always have reasons to have negative thoughts about our spouse. Those will not be hard to come by. But the danger is, is if we're constantly feeding ourselves this negative script we run the risk of staying in this cycle that is fueled by confirmation bias. 
Now, if you've never heard that term, it's quite simple. It's the, it's the process of or the result of you getting what you look for. And so if you are thinking about the negative things about your spouse constantly, you're going to constantly be aware of them, and you'll be in this cycle that's fueled by confirmation bias. And so one of the scriptures that could help us think about this differently is in James chapter 4, verse 1. And the message version says it this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And so what James is saying is like, hey, you know the source of your conflict, the source of your lack of peace has nothing to do with what's happening outside, but it has something to do with what's happening inside. And so one of the first steps we should take when we consider our thoughts about our spouse and their emotions is what are some of the things that has to do more with me than with them? Because if you've been married for any, any length of time, you will discover this, that spouses don't let us get our own way. <laughs> At least that's been my experience. Because I have noticed that Ilsian does not let me end my day the way I want to. Because the way I want to end most of my days is with a double scoop of Tillamook mudslide. <laughs> that's how I want to end my day. And can you believe it that Ilsian doesn't allow me to get away with that every night? Not every day. Not every night. And so I could easily, the script in my head could easily be, Ilsian does not want me to be happy because Tillamook Mudslide makes me happy. So surely she's against my happiness. Now, that's silly, I know, because the truth is what I need to tell myself is that Ilsian wants me to live long, <laughs> right? That is, that is the point of her not letting me get my way. And so the problem is within me, and I am... Um, I am not unique in that. There's been studies that show that married men tend to live healthier and longer lives. Gee, I wonder why, right? <laughs> if I had it my way, my diet would consist of In-N-Out and Trader Joe's mac and cheese. <laughs> and I say that with experience. That's not, that's not a stretch. That, that, I just gave you my diet for a period of my life. And so I am grateful when Ilsian doesn't always let me get my way. And I believe that is a gift uh, in marriage. And so um, what if there were things that you and I can practice to improve our thinking about our spouse? Would you care to hear about that? And so what I want to do is I want to offer two practices um, that are going to help us think differently about our spouse. And the first one is see the best. Can you repeat that? See the best. And so this is one of the intentional thoughts that Ted Lowe offers throughout his book. It's one of five. But he not only um, calls us to consider seeing the best, but he offers up a tool that he names the 4-8 filter. And that's what I want to dive into for a little bit, the 4-8 filter. The 4-8 filter is actually Philippians 4-8, which I want to read with you. It says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, 
think about such things. And so you see, the Bible is full of verses that tell us that we have the agency, we are empowered to not allow our thinking to run amok. But we are actually called, as this verse says, that we can focus on our thinking on things that produce good fruit in our lives. And that's what this 4-8 filter is really all about. It's a way to direct our thoughts in a positive way about our spouse. And if we look at the verse, it begins with a key word. And that word is truth. It says, whatever is true. Now, this word guides the rest of the list because truth should always guide our thinking, should it not? Truth is the, what we as Jesus followers strive to live in. We strive to live in truth. We know that Jesus famously said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so we see that there is freedom in truth. And so uh, Ted Lowe is specific about saying this, God in no way wants us to live a lie because truth is a great protector of people. So if you have been hurt or are being hurt, that needs to be dealt with. If a spouse is being abusive, then the truth confirms that that is never okay. If a spouse has an addiction and they refuse to deal with it, then the truth is something needs to change. And so it is very important for us to understand that seeing the best is not about seeing what is not there or ignoring something harmful. Because again, Jesus wants us to live in truth. So what truth then does is it helps us acknowledge what is still good without ignoring what is potentially dangerous. Does that make sense? Amen? And so once we're able to discern what is good and true, then we could then consider the 4-8 filter that asks us to consider what is truly noble, what is truly right, what is truly pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And so I want to invite you, for those of us who care to do this, I want you to consider taking some time this week and making a list, seeing the best, and using this 4-8 filter as your guide. And yours may look or sound similar to the one that I did when I considered Ilsian. When I considered what was truly noble about Ilsian, is that she lives a life of service towards others. And she is extremely patient with her family members. And any time one of her friends has a need, she's one of the first ones that they call. Those are things that are true, truly noble about Ilsian. Something that's truly right about Ilsian is that she is deserving of a partner that is equally contributing to doing the laundry. That is what truly is right about Ilsian. What is pure is that she doesn't pretend to be someone she's not. She's authentic. What is lovely is she's adventurous and she's a lifelong learner. What is admirable is her capacity to be an amazing wife, 
a caring mother, and um, an effective pastor. All of those things are inspiring. Can you see that by creating this list, I now am guiding my thinking about what's true and important about my significant other? Now, you might be thinking, hey, I didn't marry a pastor. Uh, You know, my spouse has very few friends. So you might be struggling with creating a list or at least to begin this list, and so I want to offer you some help. And that's with consider starting with anything. Anything. I mean, did you see it in the verse? It says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. So there's power in this. Is there anything good about your spouse? I mean, start with the basics. They're paying their taxes. They don't take up the the handicap spot at Albertsons, right? They're showering at least once a week. Is there anything? Start with anything. Because if we consider hard enough, most of us have something good and decent and noble that's worth celebrating and acknowledging and so the, eight, the four eight filter, it allows us to put our flaws in perspective. And by directing our thoughts about our spouse, we then again will change how we treat our spouse and our marriage then has potential for change. Now, it's one thing to consider how we think about our spouse. It's a whole other ballgame to consider their emotions. Has there anyone here ever been confused by the emotions by their spouse. You don't, don't raise your hand. That was, that was, that's not setting you up. It's almost Valentine's Day. Like, let's just, let's be good. Well, <clears throat> one, of, one of the difficult things is that we are emotional beings. And understanding someone else's emotion can be difficult. But there are some things that we can do that help us with that. And they can really ultimately boil down to one word. And that's Empathy. And so this is our second practice, is when we decide to choose empathy, then what we are doing is we are enabling ourselves to pick up uh, to what is going on with our spouse emotionally and be able to step in that emotion with them. And this is empathy in a nutshell. Empathy is the capacity to identify and share someone else's emotions and experiences and the word picture that it gives us or, or the, the, the image that it gives us for empathy is stepping in the puddle with your significant other. Step in that puddle with your significant other. And the Bible talks about empathy. And one of the verses that, um, that is important to consider is Romans twelve fifteen that says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and cry with those who cry. Notice the word that's repeated in that verse, and that's the four-letter word, with. With. Fundamental to marriage is experiencing life with. We get married because we desire to have a lifetime of experiences with. And so what this verse is saying, what Paul is telling us is to rejoice with and cry with is essentially to uh, be with someone 
in every emotion that they can experience, everything from the fun to the hard. Be with your significant other in the fun. Be with your significant other in the hard. And so the fun is kind of exciting, right? We, we love to celebrate, but some of us can easily oversee the importance of getting excited when our spouse gets excited. And so one of the best things we can do to protect our marriage is to enjoy it, is to have fun, is to uh, be able to connect in the things that bring you both joy. And so Paul tells us to empathize in the fun, to be with others in the fun. And that's, that's an easier ask, but the more difficult one, the one that normally trips me up is when I am, I have an opportunity to practice empathy in the hard. Because if you're like me, what I want to do when my wife is experiencing hard things is to go and change the situation or change the circumstances. And there's one word that describes this, uh, this experience that I'm having, and that's fix. I want to fix the situation. I want to fix the circumstances because I don't want my wife to experience the hard. But if I'm really honest, a lot of the times what's motivating me wanting to fix is not her emotions, but my reactions to her emotions. So you see, I am the one that's uncomfortable in that emotion, and so I want to be quick to fix. And so the advice that we can have uh, if we're dealing with that is to remind ourselves that our spouse, they're not a problem to be fixed, but they are a person to be loved. And so most of us, we give way too much weight to the power of our advice and way too little power to our empathy. And so instead of trying to fix our spouse, we are encouraged to step in the puddle with them. And there are three words uh, that I want to end with that help us to do that. And that's that I see you, I get you, and I got you. This is a formula to help us practically practice and choose empathy in our relationship. The first one um, is literal. I see you. Whenever we, ch- uh, we decide to um, literally focus on seeing our spouse and doing really basic human interaction things like making eye contact, paying attention to body language, hearing for tone, then what we are able to do is we're able to then take the information that they are giving us so that we can mirror back that emotion. And in doing that, we're able to sense what they are experiencing more accurately because we are choosing to see them. We are choosing to make eye contact. We are choosing to consider body language. We're choosing to consider tone and language that they're using to describe their experience. I see you is the first step towards empathy. 
And once you're able to do that, then the next thing you're going to want to do or we're all encouraged to do is I get you. And so fundamental to empathy is the feeling of being understood. How many of us would acknowledge that's our desire? We want to be known and understood by others, especially the most important people in our lives. And so I get you is something that we should all strive for. And so at some point in the conversation, after listening, after seeing, we want to be able to verbally acknowledge that we understand. And there are so many ways you can do that. You can say, um, if I were you, I would feel the same way. That circumstance seems to have made you frustrated. This hurt you. I hurt you. I'm sorry. And so it is important that we understand this about empathy. Empathy is not understanding something from your point of view, but understanding the point of view of someone else. And so in empathy, you don't have to agree. You don't have to co-sign someone's logic or their opinions. Validating is not the same as agreeing. And so the goal of I get you is not you're right, I am choosing to think like you. The goal of empathy is I understand where you're coming from. I hear you. I get you. And then the last thing that I want to offer up is I got you. This is ultimately the action step. This is after seeing this is after understanding, but considering something that you can do that says, I have your back. I might not fully agree. We might need to continue to have this conversation, but I have your back. I'm willing to do something based on the experience that you are helping me understand. And so doing something might mean you, you start to help out. Um, doing something might mean you celebrate. Doing something might mean you apologize. Doing something means, um, sometimes means you stop doing something. Because sometimes one of the greatest ways to show empathy is to change our behavior that is causing the emotional stress, even if we don't understand it all, especially if we don't understand it. And so the gift of empathy is a greater understanding of the person that you've made a vow to. And when we better understand our spouse, we are better in a position to do what we're all called to do, and that's to love. Because isn't love what ultimately marriage is all about? We get married to love and to be loved. And this is not an original idea. This is actually pointing to something so much bigger. Because in Ephesians 5.28, we read, we read the following. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. But then Paul then continues on in that thought. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And so 
married or not, here's the most important thing I want you to know today, that in the way we are striving to love each other as husband and wife, we are participating in something more divine. We are pointing to something more significant, and that's this, that the God of the universe sent his son so that he can die in our place so that we can have a relationship with him and so that we are invited to be sons and daughters and another way of saying that we are invited to be his body. And so what Paul is saying, consider the way Jesus care and feeds you, his body. And so as we, as we wrap up and as we consider going to communion, um, isn't it true that God, through Jesus, did the ultimate, I see you, I get you, and I got you. Isn't it true that when Jesus chose to become a human being, to take on flesh, it was because he saw the brokenness in humanity? Isn't it true that he decided um, to come and rescue because he saw that we were in need of rescue? And isn't it true that because Jesus became man, he gets us? He's, he's not unaware of what it feels like to be human and to be tempted and to be angry and to be betrayed. He experienced all of those things and yet he did not sin. And so the Bible talks about he is the ultimate one to empathize with our weakness, with our suffering. Jesus, he gets us. But then he didn't stop there. And that's what we celebrate in communion. Because he saw us, he got us, but then he did something. He chose to surrender his life on a cross. He gave up his body to be beaten on our behalf. He was crucified and his blood was shed and it was symbolic of forgiveness being given to us. And so aren't we grateful today that Jesus did something in response to our need? And so I invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, to participate in this next moment of communion. The band is going to be singing a song, and you are going to be invited to peel back that first layer, take the bread that represents the body of Christ on your own time, pull back that second layer, take the juice that represents the blood, and just consider the God of the universe who saw you, who, who gets you, and he did something about it. Consider that. And uh, as you have your moment, when you're ready, you're going to be invited to stand up and continue in worship um, with the band.